Welcome to the Party Pro Toolkit, sharing stories and ideas to empower participants and producers of nightlife, festivals, and burner culture. Greetings, this is Melina Liu, and you're listening to the Party Pro Toolkit. Theater Bazaar is one of the greatest parties in the world that you've probably never heard about. Why is that? Well, Detroit is pretty good about keeping its secrets, and the rest of the world is pretty good about ignoring Detroit. This series of interviews with party professionals from Detroit challenges those stereotypes to reveal the incredible creative projects that have been developing in this historic city. Theater Bazaar has grown into an elaborate, immersive, performative, dark carnival-themed party that spans eight floors of the world's largest Masonic temple. It takes place for two weekends leading up to Halloween. It is unlike anything else you will experience. In true Detroit style, the first 10 years of Theater Bazaar were developed under the radar and in a backyard, building year over year into a full-scale, hand-built theme park. It wasn't until they brought the Ferris wheel in for the 10-year anniversary that the fire marshal finally caught wind. When the event was shut down, they only had 18 hours to relocate. They found a new venue and their community came together, loading up pickup trucks to move the entire event and follow through for their ticket purchasers. After that fateful year, Theater Bazaar had to go legal or give up. They decided to professionalize and party on. It wasn't easy, shifting from complete creative freedom towards meeting the demands of the city, permitting, taxes, insurance. But they did it, learning every step of the way. In the 20 years since its inception, Theater Bazaar has contributed to the professional development of thousands of performers, musicians, builders, and makers in the Detroit area. People who started with Theater Bazaar have made their learned practice a professional skill. Their fire safety technician has grown to become the lead fire technician for Burning Man and wrote the federal standard for fire performance safety. This event has been an important catalyst for creative professionals and saved the Masonic Temple from bankruptcy and deterioration. This massive, immersive spectacle has done a lot for its community, but it also needs help. It's not sustainable for Theater Bazaar to continue in the Masonic Temple, and they need to invest in their own space for the event and the community development to continue. Similar to how George R.R. Martin invested several million dollars to make Meow Wolf in Santa Fe a reality, Theater Bazaar needs an angel investor to help this amazing project continue into its next phase. They need their own space that they can build out and use as a facility for the training and development of performers and artists, hosting their elaborate performances. Learn more about the fascinating journey of Theater Bazaar in this interview with founder John Dunavant and his right-hand man, Jason McCombs, from March 24, 2019, the day before the Marche de Nain Rouge, another fantastic spectacle in Detroit you may not have heard about. John, can you tell me a little bit about the origins of Theater Bazaar and how this whole thing got started? Uh, I guess the origins, it started probably somewhere in the mid-90s, in a way, uh, when I was doing house parties, just Halloween house parties, uh, just because obsessed with Halloween and I was always obsessed with artificial environments and building sets and things like that so I would just deck out my house and have people over and then that got too big and at the time I had uh, I was renting warehouse space in Detroit in the Russell Industrial Center in the mid 90s and um, shared it with a couple other artists and then started having Halloween parties in the uh, in the warehouse space because there was more room 
and they were big themed events. There was one year we were able to get a whole bunch of pews from churches, so we ended up kind of doing this minimalistic, almost like Stanley Kubrick inspired funeral session. And then the following year, we brought in, there were all these areas and these fields and alleys and things where they're clearing all these like weed trees and stuff so we had access to all that so we brought in like a thousand of these trees and filled this warehouse space with trees and then built a cabin in the center of it and then at the time it was before they were actually sucking up and collecting leaves there were people used to just bag all their uh all their fall leaves Mm -hmm. and we would just go out in mass with trucks and loading up all these bags and bags and bags of leaves that we completely covered it was like an eight thousand square foot warehouse space covered in leaves and trees and a a cabin and there were it was like you were deep yeah you were (laughs) we're on the third floor of an industrial complex but when you stepped in it felt like you were in the woods this is on the third floor yeah and there were trails through it and it was like and we have no i haven't seen one photo that ever turned out because it was so foggy in the woods that anybody that took camera you know shots with a flash or whatever it was just white so there's no record of the way it looked but it was amazing but I got in a lot of trouble for it because they were bringing a tour in. The uh, managers of the building were bringing a tour in the Sunday at, right directly after the party, and there was this trail from our space to the elevators and down the stair shafts of just leaves and branches and blood and glitter and meat and <laughs> like it was all this crap. And they were bringing this tour through to try to bring some, uh, I think it was some large print company in or something, and they saw this glitter and meat and they were just like who are you and what are you doing and they said if you do this again we're going to kick you out and I, I shared this space with you know several other artists that we were working on and it was like this was my idea so they were just like you know no more and at the time Ken Poirier was uh, he was he owned a few lots of land in Detroit <clears throat> that he rented uh some houses too, and then they had a couple other lots, and then they were all, it was basically six yards connected by backyards, plus a couple empty lots in between, and uh, he was having bonfires, and another friend who was having other themed Halloween parties, and we were all helping each other get ready for each other's, you know, party, and it was just like, well, I got, I got in trouble, so what if we all combine forces, because all of our friends, all our, you know, family, friends, we were all getting together to put these things on it was just like it was already our community we had we would all vacation together and do ridiculous things or you know or build ridiculous things so this was just sort of a natural extension of it and that first year I wanted to build a carnival but uh it was only going to be the theme for the year and the following year would change again like before it was a Kubrick funeral and then a cabin in the woods and then a carnival and then the next year is going to be something else but there was something so magical about that first experience and I was also I realized all the things that I designed there was like so much I learned from the fact that there was this mass of people there that I had to redesign it so it would be taller and loom and so you could actually see it because in my head when I was designing this abandoned carnival it was abandoned and there was like nobody there and all of a sudden there's people in the way and I was like whoa kind of have to scrap everything and it was uh, it was that idea, I think, just the, the, you know, continuing the carnival instead of rebuilding that really kind of solidified that. And 
we did scrap everything. The even the stage we built that year was stage collapsed under the weight of the snow under the winter. Right. It was meant to be. A, it was like a kind of a temporary lean-to that we were going to take down in November. But we were so exhausted building this thing that we just were like, okay, we kept putting it off. And then the snow came, and there's like a foot of snow on the roof, and it just like this was not designed to support that. So that collapsed, and uh, and we kind of realized anyway, we need to actually build a real structure and cement these posts into the ground and, and have, you know, some engineering in it and, and, uh, and kind of did a full start over the second year in a, in a much bigger way with, uh, I think that first year it became, because it was the combination of all these people coming together, we realized this thing that we were doing was greater than the sum of its parts and we can harness that and we can do so much more with it. And that was the attitude going into the, the second year, and and then and then we just you know kept going. Well, the expansions over the years too, as we were we were still uh, continuing to gain more property around us. Because like for for most of the period that Theater Bazaar existed in Detroit, I lived in one of the lofts there or one of the upper flats there. And uh, so for nine years, I lived on site, and we just kept adding more and more as the neighborhood around us was crumbling away because mm-hmm. the where we were at was pretty much one of the biggest hotspots for crack in, in, in Detroit, and all the houses would steadily become abandoned because the families would leave because of the problems with crime and drugs. There was, like, daily daily shootouts behind the house oh, wow. and and just just constant activity and those early years were nuts i mean it was just like out of movies with helicopters and spotlights and you know you know chasing people down and like it, the crime was was really bad so basically the five houses behind us all became crack houses and then they out of spite for competition for each other just started burning each other's houses down they were burning each other's house down as well as the old scoop community the few houses that were left it was the people that lived there they were they were also burning them down and when they throw in you know throw in a molotov cocktail or something and one house burns down but then it ends up catching like the two houses next to it so like three houses will burn down all at once and it was Mm -hmm. which like was in in some parts during it it was kind of scary because when they would burn it would we would it would expose us and uh expose us as you know that we were building this thing there as well as um this was cover for for stray bullets and yeah. uh i mean but part of it because this area was such a war zone and because it was so neglected we that was part of the catalyst for it was we figured you know we can get away with anything because everybody else is so we can build a theme park and just keep <laughs> going with it because because of the nature of it because it was you know this wild west situation and uh and if no one's coming for the amount of gunfire that's happening on a daily basis then no one's going to come for this you know party so we just we sort of felt uh hidden and, and able to to get away with whatever we wanted to get away with. Sure. And wasn't there, was there a process as well of, um, as these other houses were abandoned or burned down that, um, that Ken, is that right? That Ken would actually buy more property and extend the property line? Some, if, if the chance would come up, um, Theater Bazaar bought properties, you know, you can buy a property for 500 once it actually reverted back to the city. 
there were a lot of uh, property that was like the ownership was still in dispute. It hadn't gone back to the city, but like it was so abandoned anyway that we were just fencing everything in and we figured we'd sort it out as we go. We ended up buying a lot of the property, but um, the basically we went from those six lots to almost a third of a city block that was all yeah. contained within Theater Bazaar, which had three main stages, a Ferris wheel, a roller coaster, haunted house. I mean, it was in several little areas. Frontierland. Tunnels, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. The Frontierland, Ghastly Gorge fun- Frontierland was like, you know, had the... Had a jail and a general store and a two-story uh, brothel and a bank. And, a, and so after that first year, everything was being built to to stay, and it was actually being you know engineered in a more permanent way. Yeah. And so was this a, um, a theme park that was open only around the time for these Halloween parties? The officially, you know, was or whatever. I don't even call it officially, but we would have one one night party. That uh, that it would always it would be fully decked out for where all the lights would be running. We would have you know the wood chips on the ground, and we would you know, there would be a massive amount of lighting and and uh, other things that would come in. But this was also where we lived and played, and this was you know Detroit had been. I started going to school in Detroit in '89, and then like after that, it was just like especially like the late '80s in Detroit, it was just insane. Like you never. You still don't to a degree, but it's gotten better. But uh, you wouldn't stop at streetlights, and so it just became the streets were just racetracks, and we would do whatever we wanted. Or um, this was an extension of that. You know, it's still mm-hmm. late '90s and early 2000s at this point, and uh, yeah. Well, a lot came out of it. It also became kind of an incubation space because we had the space to do whatever we wanted. So, right. you know, there were we did. Uh, art festivals I did I, I started a thing that was called Stolen Media Festival that was basically like a curated uh, curated show of, of the best stuff that I could find on the internet and this is before YouTube existed so that was like a thing that you know unless you wanted to find funny videos you had to really go search oh, for yeah. them and stuff so yeah, I would a make a film two, fest yeah and make a two hour show out of it and then we did in the summer times, we'd do Monday night at the movies, where we'd set up a screen on the main stage and you know have everybody come out for a dollar or whatever, just to you know pay for power basically. And and or we had a backyard like pro wrestling shows mm-hmm. scored live by a violinist. Like it would be you know where there were random things and we little pockets of stuff because we were just doing these things anyway, but. Theater Bazaar that night, it was like, people would say, oh yeah, I've been to Theater Bazaar, I came to this one thing, and we're like, yeah, you went there, but you didn't really get to go to Theater Bazaar, because like, the night, the, the amount of work that led up to like, really displaying it the way it was meant to be seen, mm-hmm. took a lot, and then that night was, was so magical, like when people would enter, you'd get so disoriented, even people, like we'd live there, designing it, building it, having a extreme intimate knowledge of, of the space, but when it would fill up on those nights and the way things were lit and it was like the place grew four, four times in size and uh, and we'd even get lost in it. It was it was it was really hard to explain. We would bring in hundreds and hundreds of trees and line the whole yard. Like we'd go to overgrown lots that would just be filled with, with overgrown brush and fifteen foot high trees and just clear cut the whole lot and bring it back and start lining the whole property with it. We built like two layer 
scaffolding so that we could just hide the neighborhood houses. So once you came into the backyard, you know, there was no sight line to let you know you were in a city anymore at all. And same from the outside. The outside, to a degree. Some things, like, especially once the roller or the Ferris wheel went up, like, oh man, it's coming. Because you can, like, we knew we were going to get in trouble. It wasn't really the Ferris wheel per se that did it, but. It was it would have it was inevitable because you could see the Ferris wheel from a half mile away. <laughs> yeah, well known fact: you can buy a Ferris wheel on eBay. Buy it now for thirteen thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> the roller coaster kind of looked like scaffolding in the trees, so it was we could kind of we could hide that in plain sight for a while. But sure. the, but the Ferris wheel was like there was no mistaking that that's a Ferris, a Ferris wheel. wheel. <laughs> How long did it take to get uh, to the point where you had the Ferris wheel? That was the last year. No one actually, no one ever got to really ride it for the official party um, because we we did our probably our largest expansion ever was the year we were shut down. It was uh, and so much we built this new stage that was kind of partly inspired by the neighborhood where um, a couple houses did burn down and there was these giant oak trees, these big beautiful trees that were also completely scorched from these houses burning. So we built this new stage around these trees to make it feel like the whole theme being this abandoned carnival this the stage looked like these trees grew through the stage so the stage like the roof of the stage was split and the trees were growing up through it and then we had because of the trees being burnt we burnt part of the stage to make it feel we have flamethrowers everywhere and there's obviously this dangerous aspect to it all as far as perception goes and then by only adding to it by building the stage that already looks like it caught on fire um kind of added to the whole dangerous feel but that stage was designed in a way to be watched by the ferris wheel the where we set that up there was the Frontierland expansion we had um so much stuff was built the year we were caught that that was like one of the most heartbreaking parts of it was getting to that point and then having all these designs over this was kind of a phase one situation and knowing where we were going to build and Mm -hmm. and knowing how much the skills that we've accumulated by this point and the the level of like ridiculousness that we could pull off like we knew that these next couple of years were going to be special i really just i figured we knew we were going to get caught but i was hoping we had a couple more years to finish these yeah. designs at least that year i was hoping to get through just because it was going to be i mean the best weather we would have ever had the largest expansion we would have ever had the largest crew or, or the largest audience we would have ever had. Uh, and so you just didn't even get to have all of it. the event that year. We had the event. We moved it. We were uh, we were caught. We had it was the day before. It was a Friday. It was the day before our doors. Um, was when all week things had kind of been bubbling. We started realizing we were on the radar. We started getting notes from the health department and building inspection and things like that. But it was like Detroit and at the time, especially the Detroit bureaucracy was so slow. We just figured this is going to pass. We've had, we've had some, you know, we realized there was some eyes on us at a couple other points, but everything passed because again, it was Detroit, but Detroit was changing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and it, it started to happen pretty rapidly. And then by Friday, there was the the fire marshal, the SWAT teams. Uh, it was like seven separate departments came all in force. Oh wow! SWAT yeah. teams showed up in plain clothes, but they were like 
with a video camera plotting how they were going to raid it. Right. And, like, they, they were just like, yeah, this party's not happening. And if it does, this is what we're going to do. Well, right. What were the faces like, like? Oh, we were like, well, to me, I was still, you know. <laughs> when they walked in and saw this, what did, Oh, them? Yeah, yeah they what was were, their face They like? were pretty blown away. Oh, the fire marshal was just like. The fire marshal didn't even leave the driveway. He walked up and went, no. Yeah, he was no. like. No. <laughs> right. He just kept saying that over and over again as he's walking in. The further you get, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, they were simultaneously extremely impressed and not impressed at the same time. <laughs> they were just yeah. like, you guys are done. And I was like, no way, you're not stopping us. Like, I figured also Detroit, like, there's no way they had the manpower or the police force or anything to really shut us down. So I was like, call, I was also delirious and slept in days. Yeah, right. You're trying to call really their bluff. Hard. I'm like, I'm not going to let this end. And I'm like, you're going to, you can arrest me. Go to jail. I'm going to jail. But this party is going to happen because I want people to experience Frontierland. So, <laughs> and, uh, and then we, we called friends that had, uh, like 3,000 tickets already yeah. sold. Yeah. <laughs> 2,300 23. tickets were sold. And we were like, uh, we'd spent just on that year. It was quarter million dollars which was I think the most we'd spent on a year at, at that point uh, we'd call the friend we didn't have anybody that was a lawyer but we had a friend of a friend that was a lawyer and the lawyer comes in and she's just like yeah you guys are screwed and she's just like this is Detroit though so uh, your 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 best option here is to bribe the fire marshal and we we're like okay uh, <laughs> never done that before but all right and she's like well how much money do you have left over and at that point we still hadn't the only thing we hadn't paid left was like bands and performers. So we had like $16,000 left over from the 250,000. She's like, okay, take it all and bribe the fire marshal. So I go to the fire marshal and I'm like, uh, can I give you, I'm like, I don't even know how to do this. <laughs> I was like, this awkward kid asking for a prom date. I was like, uh, I'll give you $16,000 to make this go away. And he's just like, you got to put that away, son. This comes directly from the mayor. And we are like, Oh no. <laughs> so, so that was it. And then at that point, um, it was a scramble of calling all our friends with trucks, all the hands that we could get. And well, before that, we, were, we weren't even sure where we were going to go. And um, we had some feelers and some word went out and we heard back from the Fillmore, which is the old state theater in Detroit that they happened to not have like a show that Saturday night. And as a favor, to a friend of a friend they would hear us out but they basically said there's no way they're gonna we're not gonna have this party here um this isn't gonna happen but we'll hear you out and it was like i don't know 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night when we actually got there to meet with them because they were busy they had a big show it was Friday a sold night. out sold out show of band of horses right yeah right they had a sold out show they were busy so it was like 10 11 o'clock at night when we all show up we, we haven't slept we're all like completely like we're shell-shocked and uh and not really sure what to do and we when we got there they said the looks on our faces is what made them want to help us they were oh. just like you guys looked so devastated we couldn't say no <laughs> and so we we're just like okay now it's 11 o'clock and we're like call everybody all this just a convoy of trucks show up and all our friends are just strip mining the grounds and pulling anything we can. We don't even know what we're going to do exactly. I mean, we were walking the, the film more really quick going, okay, maybe we can do this here and here, this here. And we were coming up with a bunch of ideas, but we're just like, we'll bring everything we can and we'll figure it out. And we had 18 hours to move uh, a party that spanned 23 blocks at that, or 23 like lots yeah. at that point. Uh, and, and was massive and was growing and, you know, 
and scale in so many ways to to this like commercial venue which was like it felt wrong on so many levels and just destroying this <clears throat> this fresh corpse uh, and tearing it apart and picking it apart to move there. Oh wow, yeah. And so we. Um, and what was the turnaround on this from the time it got raided? Eighteen hours. Eighteen hours. Till yeah. doors, yeah. yeah. From the time. And you, so you held the you held that. We day. Held the event. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Yeah. We, we had to honor these tickets. There was no other way we could do it. We didn't we have yeah. pay them back. This was. The money had already gone. Did you hear that fire festival? That's how you do it right. <laughs> right. <laughs> we still honored every ticket. Yeah. Oh wow. And people who had never been to Theater Bazaar said it was the best Halloween party they'd ever gone to. And it's like, oh, you missed out so big. But you know, it's like we pulled but off thank you. Yeah. Like, just an unbelievable turnaround. And then on top of that, like because I don't think we the had ever looked better. Yeah, we had we had three <laughs> stages full of artists that now we have to pare down to one main stage and a couple little catwalks that we you know, so basically at that time I was a stage manager and so the the stage managers are all sitting down together and we're just going through it's like okay well now we gotta like best of the best it you know like mm-hmm. so basically every artist that was on my stage got cut you know i mean we let them come to the party but like none of those artists performed i think maybe one and then like same with every all these other stages plus then it was like well that's a really good band so we would cut a, a main stage act and slot that in restructure the entire get hold of all of the performers as as well as we're ripping everything apart loading trucks and getting everything ready and then we're like okay where are we going to put a suspension rig where are we going to put a burlesque stage where are we going to put a a sideshow you know like and just trying to really kind of shoehorn it all into the into the 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 Fillmore so we took over both lobbies the you know like the suspension rig and a bunch of other stuff was in the main lobby the the lobby behind the theater had a big burlesque mm-hmm. stage in it like we just put everything we could anywhere we could and then decked out the stage of the best you know with all the ba- all the sideshow banners all of our portable structures that we had all of the you know uh hay bales and skeletons and you know everything that we could lift and carry and take down there and every signage piece that we could take off and take down there and every you know so the stage had this like really cool look of like a like a traveling road show that sure, had been just, just kind of dense sitting sitting there you know what i mean like yeah we got to use like a fly rig we were like sweet there's yeah. so much but we don't have any <laughs> like, this, this yeah. has me thinking you know the difference of had this been a formal business compared to being a really like community-led effort just the fact of like how different that would have been you know if it's business people would be like oh sorry fail but like the fact that this was you know had hundreds of people involved in the creation and invested in this experience that you were actually able to make that kind of a transition and people, you know, really came to yeah, the table. Was, like, what was what was that level of, you know, the community development that happened in that time? That was huge because, well, I mean, a big part of it, and that's one of the things that sort of has kept us going in some ways, is like the crew wouldn't let it die. It was, you know, it was again it goes back to the beginning of making something that's greater than the sum of its parts, and it was like the crew was just like. We're not going to let this happen. It wasn't even really a crew then. Like, it, I think it galvanized us. It was, by doing that, was it made it possible for us to get to this next level, which we weren't even sure was at the time. We, you know, our future was completely... And literally, we were just trying not to lose our ass and get 
sued by or have a bunch of angry people in our backyard telling sure. us that we owe them money. But it wasn't just <laughs> you. I mean, it was, you had all these other people who were invested right. and willing to make it And there was still a whole lot of people that were still pissed. They never went to the Fillmore. They still have never been to the Masonic. They're like, yo, we were screwed. And I was like, whatever, man. This was an underground <laughs> party you knew going in. And, yeah. like, and you got the biggest... Uh, deal out of it. It was a risk we were There's all taking. There's still some grudges? Mm-hmm. There's still some grudges. Yeah, There's still some people who <laughs> fuck off. Yeah. So, like, I, right. There's I got people. no sympathy for him. Yeah. We did everything we could and it was either move on or die. Well, so. and the, yeah, that sounds like some entitlement to me. There's a whole oh, lot of entitlement. Like, yeah. spoiled the shit out of him. I think that, you know, they're like, well, it's not, it's not Theater Bazaar at the Masonic. Like, I'll never go to that. It's like, it's still the best party in town that you could possibly go to. Why would you not want to go to that? I mean, to be fair, it's one of the best parties in the country. In the world. Yeah, in the world. but I'm just saying, yeah. like, it, yeah. in the world. there's nothing that's like it anywhere. That's a small statement, because right. that's real. We're t- we tell you, tell me, there's nothing like it in the world, and it totally sounds like hype, but, like, it you back up every ounce of it. And it's funny, because, you know, there's all the, the people, the bands, and performers, and traveled, like, David J. Bauhaus comes, and he's, like, you know, talking about partying with Iggy Pop and Studio 54 and the parties in Milan and you know all over the world and he's like I've still never experienced anything that comes close to what this was and sure. it's just like we get that in some form from so many people sure. uh, I think it's Don's uh, sorry. Sorry. we'll do it right <laughs> um the, the, the level of everything that we're just like giving to it you know at the grounds it was like you know, it didn't, we never meant for, I never meant for it to become what it became at the time in this beginning. It was, it was kind of a lark. I was a frustrated artist looking, you know, to blow off steam. And then, and then like it got obsessed with building these environments and everybody, you know, we're all working on this thing in a, together in a bigger way. And then it, it just kept growing. So to even, you know, I lost my train of thought. Uh, um, so I guess the the vision keeper of this, like, how did you how did you get people to buy into this idea? Like you were saying, you were trying to blow off steam, and you know from these other things, like through creation, um, you know through creating these events, and you were like the lead designer and really like the vision keeper for this whole experience. Um, what was that? What was that like? Of like getting people invested in your idea and getting people to buy into this. I think at the time, it was just, again, like I was already this group of friends and family and this well, yeah, community we that we had already, yeah. we've already been doing completely ridiculous things together for so long that um, the core of it wasn't that hard. And then by, by doing, at least getting people together, um, by doing that first year, even though we scrapped everything and started over, I think that really you know, it showed us what can be done. Mm-hmm. And then the bar just kept getting raised from there every year. As it kept being curated and expanded. And then by the time that we actually got to the point where we shut down, I mean, we had been doing it for 10 years already and already had this wealth of, of skills and background and people had kind of started to take into their own of... Uh, you know, becoming, you know, I went from a, a DJ to a stage manager to, to you know, some kind of 
project manager to general manager you know mm-hmm. it's like and everybody else that's been with us along the way has have you know started out where they just showed up on a weekend here and there and then now they're you know heads of departments and stuff and, and, and how many people have been there from the beginning or like from those early days core it's probably maybe four or five i mean there's still like yeah uh there's still sort of the ancillary the 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 i don't know what you call it um, people that still kind of show up just to help out and move some stuff and volunteer. That's kind of hard to say, but the core is still probably it's only like four or five, maybe. Yeah, that's six tops. Yeah. That, that are still the people that run and are department heads and stuff like that. The, and then we're always growing pains and changing and evolving as we move into more professionalism and then as there's more money available to try and bring more people on to try and divide up the workload and I mean last year we did a lot of major changes with just the structure of the the working environment of of who's in charge of what and had a lot of great success with that and reduced a tremendous amount of stress level and we basically have brought on and paid more people and paid better than we ever have yet the still the shortcomings in the financial benefit of it is is just the fact that they want to do these things and they're they, you know we had you know we just had some meetings the other day where people tell us we pay them too much and it's like that's not true <laughs> you know and it's like that's just like I, I thank you but no <laughs> it's like we were yeah. you know so and it it is because people wanted want to be a part of it want to build it want to to mm-hmm. to be there to be to make the thing be the thing and if it were financially feasible I mean then you know I would love to have you know a, a staff of people that that's their full-time job but we're just not there you know so. sure um <laughs> let's let's shift over into that evolution right so um when the theme park got closed down uh and you had to move over to the Fillmore did you hold Theater Bazaar again that very next year? Were you ready to go? And yes. did it move to the Masonic Temple yep. that very next year? Very next year. And we didn't even know, like for, I don't know how many months, six months, seven months or so, we had no idea where we were going. It was still, you know, we just knew we wanted to move forward in some capacity. It we was like thinking on the premise that we were going to be at the Fillmore again. But we didn't want to be there, but that was what we were thinking was going to be our options. Yeah, it was and so like so moving into those kinds of venues, is that where you're starting to um, experience more of these like insurance and permitting and things like oh, that? Oh, yeah, which it's became necessity as far as actually moving illegal, into it becomes licensed so venues. much more complicated, and you know, all these yeah. things that we had no experience in. You know, in the beginning, people were like, well, how come you didn't get permits and how come you didn't do this and that? It's like, well, one, you just can't. You can't get a permit to build a theme park in a residential area. You can't get to all the things that we were doing. And you can't so, insure an illegal party. You can't insure, I mean, you know, right. it's just like everything we were doing, there was no point in trying to get the, that kind of stuff because you couldn't. Like, we were, this was impossible. We were so naive, though, that we did have, we had, we, you know, we were insuring the party at the grounds and then, like, the guy that had been insuring it for a few years was like, well, this sounds like a great party. And he came to the party and he's like, you can't insure this. It's like, <laughs> like, your policy, as soon as I walked in the door, your policy was known void. <laughs> it's like, okay. So, you know, we learned 
a lot kind of the hard way. Um, <laughs> yeah, what was that transition like, you know, from moving from the underground into moving into these, you know, licensed venues with different expectations? It sucked. It was awful. It was like, you know, we, we had so much freedom to do whatever we wanted for so long. And, you know, if we were like, oh, yeah, we got an idea where we're going to build these flamethrowers and these explosives and then we're going to do this and launch somebody and someone's going to come on stage with a motorcycle on fire and we're just like, yes, to all of it. And then now we're like, oh, wait, now we have to have, we've got to figure out the, what are the succession of events that have to happen to make this happen, and then the permits and the approvals along the way, and the expense of that, and it just, everything becomes complicated and, and sucks like all the fun the out of it. fire marshal walkthroughs, and, and right. even still, I mean, it's like, you know, we have to compromise on what kind of flame effects we can do where and how, you know, like we, we don't do fire in rooms with carpet. We don't do, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. That I mean, seems like common sense, but I mean, the fact that you not what we would fire. want to do. Yeah, the <laughs> like, fact that you can do the fire in the Masonic temple is impressive. Part of that is it came from like a guy, the guy that's the head of our pyro came to the party and was just like, yeah, I can help out and didn't really have any background in any of that stuff. He started to help build our flamethrowers and got really invested inside of it. But he grew in his knowledge along the way. And now he's like, his, his degree in speciality of like, flame effects and stuff he's teaching the detroit fire department how to go into the future of like flame effects and how to deal with people i mean his his knowledge of law and and uh like everything that is kind of accumulated over the years of just even dealing mm-hmm. with theater bizarre he's become this expert on it in the area or even like burning man has hired him as the he's their lead lead technician for fire safety um he also and also uh, my assistant, who helps me with logistics and security and a bunch of other stuff, wrote the actual uh, federal standard for fire safety performance. Uh, that was his thesis from uh, from college, and he's an ex firefighter. And wow. you know, so, like, he wrote the NFPA whatever guidelines for fire performers, and uh, the 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 stuff like with uh with josh and his his knowledge like he was yeah he was a law student at cooley law school and then he met theater bizarre and now he's a professional pyrotechnics you know he does uh major firework shows does like that's what he does is build flamethrowers and blow shit up so yeah. and i mean and, and that's kind of that's what i've been seeing and experiencing is you know when people can really invest in things like this that are non-traditional paths. It's more of this, you know, creative, um, just creative pursuits of these countercultural type themes. It's like there's opportunities to professionalize. And I imagine... In a really niche way, yeah. in a weird way, because there hasn't, you know, there's no necessarily demand for it elsewhere because when you're doing these things that hasn't, haven't really been done, and then you have people that have grown up with it, like Josh becomes super specialized in this yeah. weird thing that he's now, you know, can do what he does. And what it's, about your performers and other, you know, Same other, thing, I mean, even people. in the beginning, especially back in the grounds, like, you know, almost 20 years ago... Uh, Circus wasn't the thing it is now. No, not at all. Yeah, Jim Rose Circus Sideshow traveling with like Lollapalooza and stuff. But other than that, there was nothing really out there. There was a couple things in New Orleans and, you know, we were tapped into a little bit of that. But Detroit had no idea. We're like, we had people like 
trying to teach other people how to eat fire and we they hadn't eaten fire they're just like you got the balls to do it it's, i think it's like this it's everybody's burning their mouths and <laughs> yeah. getting blisters and not their lips. using the right mix of oils and not oh, right enough. getting just, sick from it and just like figuring out the way and like yeah. burlesque and just so many different things they were like we don't know how to do this but we can all figure it out and and like so much of those communities kind of even grew around the demand that theater bazaar needed because we were like we need circus performers so we got so everybody to become a circus out. performer <laughs> become a burlesque performer right and better better polish your band we need we need we need performers <laughs> and, and i'm sure that extends opportunities for them beyond theater bazaar oh, for sure it's like was, ever since yeah. then it's just been rolling in the detroit fire guild and like all these different things that grew out of it they've you know they're doing things obviously on their own and, and a part of other events and traveling and and, and, you know, and things like that, but a lot of it stemmed from the, our needs in the beginning, you know, however many years ago. And in and, and being able to kind of nurture these troops along the way has been a really cool aspect of it as well. You know, seeing people that came, you know, they went in there and they're like, we have no idea what they're doing. And now they're doing these incredible acrobatic feats and swallowing swords and eating fire and doing whatever they're doing. It's like, you know, watching them grow has been awesome sure and what is that process like today as far as um now you have these performers who have developed you know so much and is there kind of a mentorship process as far as new performers coming in or what does that look like yeah kind of unofficially i mean it's um we have like our management or lane performer managers holding like character development classes like away from theater bazaar or uh just People that have even come in, and then they we we're, we have a blend of local performers and then international or national performers, and then having them there alongside the local performers who are like going, oh, they're seeing you know other things that can be done, and you're seeing they're seeing these other levels of professionalism that uh, that they weren't really necessarily exposed to before, and so much of that is like, I think even like we rent out um, the Detroit hostel. Uh, for a few weeks and you rent out the entire thing and it becomes like this performer dorm room for October for us and just even that community of them oh, swapping wow. stories and learning things and coming together like some people are just like I love to th- perform at Theater Bazaar but I really love living at the hostel at this point yeah. with all these other people it's like your yearly friends that you don't get to see except for around Theater Bazaar mm-hmm. and then you're also they're swapping stories and sharing these experiences and building on on that and growing as performers from from just from that aspect so it's yeah many of the performers that started out you know you know poorly performing circus tricks are now professionals and travel the country and are you know it's like we've yeah inadvertently created several other kind of troops and communities that now are operating businesses and mm-hmm. you know and you know professional troops and and also you know don't have day jobs anymore don't you know these are these are people that that's all they do now and that's you know that's an amazing accomplishment i think that we've help somebody realize what it is that they want to do and facilitate their ability to do it. Yeah, even though this is an annual event Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's created opportunities for artists that extend beyond that. Uh, Like thematically at the grounds, uh, when the design, especially the second year and then from there on out, uh, I was 
I was way more interested in the world building aspects of it and didn't want to, when going into the design, I wasn't trying to create this historically accurate Dust Bowl era carnival or whatnot. It had those inspirations, but it was, it was more or less meant to be a diorama uh, where you were a miniature and you're entering into this, you know, this, this uh, model essentially and wandering around. Because as a kid, I always loved natural history museum dioramas or weird mm. roadside attraction dioramas and all of these different things and just wanting to be tiny and walk around in these worlds. And there was an aspect of entering the grounds where you would. Uh, it would go into blackness and then you would pop out of this area that it was this color and saturation and everything was designed with a specific limited color palette and a specific brushstroke and everything from the restroom signs to the stage signs was all painted with one type of brush to all feel like it's this one hand like this you know puppet master toy builder diorama maker who is like essentially this godlike character for this world you're entering it was it was it was a carnival, but it, to me it was also a, it's based this creationist myth, and uh, and mm-hmm. never really got to get into the storytelling aspects of it at the grounds. But to me, there was all these laws I was building in my head as I was doing the world building that everything always referred back to that as as we went, and then we got caught, and it was like especially because of the next couple of years over that I really wanted to flesh out more of those details and those aspects and we never got to do that so when we when we got caught and we weren't really sure where we were going when the idea that uh we were going to go to the masonic temple came up i was like i didn't think it was actually going to happen it was too exciting because the building itself is just the mystique obviously of these secret societies the these you know dabbling in these dark arts and things like that you already have this lore around the building the building is ridiculous and crazy Mm -hmm. and to be able to take that over it was like I didn't think it was possible, but it was also once that happened to be able to embrace that side of it, the the beauty of its architecture, the iconography of the secret societies, and then tell another story. At the time, like too, when we started Theater Bazaar, no one was really doing sideshow. There wasn't any this like dark carnival genre or anything. And then by ten years into it, it was already becoming almost cliche. So by having this other aspect of the secret society being introduced, it felt like to me, I was like, I was so not happy and heartbroken because we had to give up one side. But then there was this other side where there was another opportunity to expand this world Mm. and embrace these things about the building and then tie that into the story where it just becomes, you know, justifying why we're there. But it gave a reason to step back and redevelop this story and, and create our own secret societies that's using these these mythalized like uh, these portals that the you know the people talk about the masons and their geometry and, and and how they can open portals into worlds and you know these the the kind of urban legend of it all to embrace that and say we're opening these portals to this dark carnival we built before and then have mm-hmm. this blending of secret society and carnival and and do this you know something I love juxtapositions of unlike things and I love you know like even in my artwork I love the combination of beauty and grotesque and these opposites it's like that's where there's this energy lies so having that opportunity of like combining the secret society society with this carnival was like that part of it was super exciting to be able to expand the story in a way that you know didn't really see coming 
Well, and expose this world that's not often <clears throat> exposed to the public, really. You know, right. that was something different for me, just even being inside a Masonic temple. Yeah. And realizing that a lot of the bathrooms were unisex because there weren't actually women's restrooms right. in a lot of the areas. So boys <laughs> that is the reason why it, it all became unisex out of necessity because there are very, very few women's bathrooms. And the women's bathrooms that are there, there's like one stall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I noticed that. I was like, oh, these are all, oh, <laughs> that's what's going on here. Because this is usually a place that yeah. only men enter. Right. And they actually changed Masonic law right. to allow us to have the party. Until we were there, you weren't allowed to have alcohol above the third floor. Uh, women weren't allowed in any of the lodge rooms. Uh, there was a bunch of stuff that they... Yeah, they had to meet and change Masonic law for us to throw this party, which yeah. was crazy. And to an extent, Theater Bazaar helped save this Masonic temple. This is the world's largest Masonic temple, is yeah. that right? world's largest, one of the most... I studied architecture for some time, and like I'd never seen a building like it. It is such a unique example of what... I don't even know what. It's like this crazy it's like temple Gothic castle. Right. Yeah. It's like there's not a lot of castles laying around, but that's one of them. Right. And the fact that on the, you know, essentially they call it their third floor, but the way that their floors are laid out, it's essentially it's the sixth floor of this building has a stone cathedral built by the descendants of the Knights Templar. Like, mm-hmm. like this is nuts. Yeah. yeah. And, and to be able to open that up as another playground was just like, that's... that's yeah, that's an aspect that I was so enamored with when I was able to attend, was just like, I can't believe this is happening here. Right. In this Still place. Can. That, you know, otherwise I may not even be able to see. Right. Um, but wasn't there a time period where the Masonic Temple was at risk of closing? Yeah, at the time that they were, when one of the reasons why it opened up to us was they were, they were definitely at risk of closing. They needed to shake things up. They were, um, they were going to a group that was, you know, producing shows. It was actually at um, one of the things they own is a as a club in Pontiac, and at the time, also simultaneously, there was a group filming us to do a uh, a documentary on on the grounds and which was funny because at the time we were like we don't know if you're ever going to be able to release this because everything we're doing is illegal <laughs> and then and then we got shut down so they cut a trailer they showed a trailer at this club the guy that owns it uh, saw the trailer. He was also the guy that they were bringing in to... Um, it was like an entertainment director for the Masonic at the time. Right, yeah, to kind of bring in some new shows. And so he suggested uh, to them that we bring they bring us in to do this event oh, there. Oh, wow. so that's how that connection was made. Right. They wanted and, a large-scale event because they needed revenue desperately. They were almost $200,000 in debt just on their electric bill, you know, and... And the building was back taxes, way behind on taxes. There was so and, much. Yeah. And, they and were, then the building was crumbling. There were so many issues with it. There was a lot of problems. And so they were like reluctantly. At first they were just like, you want us to bring in this is a group of outlaws that just got, you know, <laughs> just got shut down. And, no regard for the law. <laughs> right. And they were just like, no way. And uh, But he convinced them because they kind of figured out what they could make on our bar and, you know, the, the, the scale of it all. And so it was, yeah, very reluctantly that first year they allowed us to do it. And then they also then from that kind of confirmed what they were making off of the par. And that's, that basically cemented us in for a bit because 
they could do that. But then we also, while we were doing it, while we were, we move in and we fall in love with the building. And now just because of the nature of what we're doing and how we have to be in every single corner and every part of that building and back behind things and stairwells, we're starting to see areas of the building and things that are getting neglected that no one's necessarily seen because the scale is so big. You can't, you can't really take it in the way we were taking it in unless you do something like what we were doing. So we were able to point out problems and help out with problems and and uh, sure, you know, help like, you know fix the building in some ways. Right. Yeah. Well, we refurbished a room that hadn't been open in 13 years and did asbestos abatement, cleaned it, cleared it, and set it up just because we needed more space. Right. <laughs> it was all on us. To, you know, it was on our dime to fix it. And the asbestos part of it, all of it, was <clears throat> because we were moving it forward. We also. You know, said we fell in love with this building. It is such a crazy example of whatever it is. It just mm-hmm. you know it doesn't exist anywhere else, and it it should be maintained and taken care of. And and that's an ongoing um, issue in Detroit in general. Is just preserving some of these historic buildings right. that otherwise will start to crumble and get demolished. Where the community, it seems, really has to step up and help. You know. Restore, revive, and salvage these historic buildings. Right. It's the same with just our use of the building and our care of the building and taking care of, of things that we see that are problems that are not only problems for us but are problems for the building. Because, you know, the, the building up until recently with the turnaround of Detroit and some investments that they've made uh, just didn't have money to fix anything. Sure. You know, and so we would be coming in and it's like, okay, well, this door is broken, so we'd fix it. You know, mm-hmm. there was a, 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 a outside exterior door that we use a lot for load in and it was just rusted to the point to where the doors are about to fold into the building on a strong wind. So, you know, I commissioned somebody to custom mill a bunch of parts that don't exist anymore at CCS so that we could repair this door, you know, and, and we had a minor problem. I mean, it was a big deal, but I mean, like we don't have a lot of it. So it's, but we had had some theft of some artifacts. So, you know, I found a guy in Pennsylvania who specializes in bronze historical recreations and had all, everything that was taken remade and replaced for the building. And some, like, old forge in Philadelphia or something. It was, like, it was was crazy. Yeah, that was nuts, too. He's this this super old-timer, like, no cell phone. You couldn't email him a picture of anything. Like, you had to physically send him stuff to get any quotes and just be written on a piece of paper and mailed back. And, like, (laughs) yeah. But he was good at what he did, and he, he completely made, like, you would never know the difference from... You know, but that's what he did, and I got his contact through one of our volunteers who uh, works in restorations at uh, Henry Ford Museum. Oh wow! So it's like, and and has that helped? Um, you know, build stronger relationships with the Masonic Temple through those. Definitely a large contingency of people who do love us there, but there's also a large contingency of of older, a lot more conservative. You know probably deeply religious people that don't get that we're making jokes about, you know, you know, it's like we're not, you know, they think we're straight Satan worshipers and that we're, you know, hedonistic, you know, whatever. But, 
it's more tongue in cheek than it is actual fact. And I mean, you know, they just they just don't like us, you know. And and that's dying yeah. out. But at the same time, but there's still the ones that are still there feel very strongly. I mean, they're older guys that are set in sure. their ways. They see these young crazy guys coming in with, you know, giant double sculptures. But it's also part of Masonic, you know, the perception that people have had of the Masons forever is, you know, there's there's definitely a certain faction of people believe that they are in league with the devil and they do use, you know, symbols like the pentagram and mm-hmm. things like that and people will misunderstand it. But in partially too, like even the first year coming into it, knowing that, you know, we just spent ten years building this theme park and got got shut down. I didn't want to go into this building and then design a bunch of stuff, build it, and then they'd look at it and, you know, we'd get shut down because they were offended by it. Sure. So I had to have a pre-meeting where it was all these designs where I'm like, basically, I am taking the iconography from that they hold so dear and revere and, you know, turning it on its head a bit and mocking it to a degree, but also mocking the perception of it, the public perception that they're in league with the devil. It's like, we want to embrace that. And, and... You know, a lot of, in my own art, uh, I play with false histories, play with, you know, tearing down symbols and, you know, things like that. And so this was part of it. So taking some of the, these symbols and using it in, you know, in our own way. I, like, I wanted them to see it because I knew it was going to rub some people the wrong way. And like I said, I didn't want to spend all this time. It was a whole lot easier showing them all the concepts than taking these concepts and then actually building them and spending all this time and money mm-hmm. constructing it. And then they say, <laughs> Good no way in hell. So, yeah, make sure you have those uh, approvals first. So that was a kind of a nerve-wracking meeting because they were still like, we don't get what you're doing. And I'm like, well, it's, it's also mocking the people that believe, you know, the things that you hate, the things that you're, you know, the, 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 you know like the Masons are, you know, they're not happy with being perceived as... Uh, Satanists and stuff, and I'm like, we were just kind of taking taking the piss out of all of that by by doing it this way because it tears down. It's this the ridiculous notion that you know they're in league with the devil or whatever. And, and, and plus, it, it's just a fun thing to play with. Sure, and that, and that's what it felt like to me. Is it felt very um, playful, you know? That it felt very playful, and it's like this exploration of the darkness in all of us. But it did not by any means feel to me like I was actually walking into any sort of satanic, satanic rituals or, you know what I mean? Where it was yeah, like, it's definitely it meant felt, to be a celebration. It feels like theater. Well. Yeah. It feels like theater. It feels, you know, playful and interactive. And it, it feels like an invitation to explore that aspect of yourself. Right. Yeah, because there's a part, there is this, there's this elitist aspect to it. There's obviously with the, the secret societies, this old boys club that is very uh, exclusive type of a thing. When you enter the event, everyone there is supposed to be a member of this mm-hmm. society. So it's not, it's supposed to be, even though it's dark and scary on one level, it's supposed to be warm and welcoming on this other level to, to you know, to not necessarily intimidate, but to uh, embrace. So. I think a lot of people have that eyes wide shut. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Visual still, you know, yeah. when they think about these secret societies. And we're definitely playing um, with that. Yeah. Well. And so uh, was the, the evolution of the gala was that kind of a natural progression of just being in the masonic temple itself yeah that came from yeah, point of sort like, of i mean we wanted to do something like that on old grounds it just was never feasible we could never pull off two nights in a row and i kept like it was like if we couldn't even even at the masonic it was like you couldn't do two saturday nights because of the 
suit Saturday type nights, you know, the full blown party. Like you couldn't have a, a Saturday night type party on a Friday and then have it Saturday because it's like it takes almost a week to, to fully reset. reset. Because sure. of the scale. The building's destroyed on the end of Saturday night and, and pumpkins turn into soup because of the heat from just the bodies in the building. And yeah, and we have a full reset. I like, got candy yeah. and all the pumpkins. And, you know, and even now it's like the scale is so big. We've had through Eastern Market and uh, these farmers, they're basically starting, they're even starting now. There are their pumpkin crop just for us. We do two semi trucks of pumpkins between the two weekends, and then we have how much candy corn though? There's over a ton. <laughs> over a ton. Of, yeah, over, almost yeah, a, almost a ton and a quarter now. Yeah, yeah with all of those um, beautiful centerpieces that were made, I was like, "How much candy corn is over this?" A ton. And someone told me, "Don't eat the candy corn." <laughs> some, some. There's Anything that's glued to like a goat, don't eat that. Right. But all the stuff that's on the tables is all fresh. Candy. Anything well, in, sure, a like the stuff in a jar. Like the stuff. Yeah. All the stuff that's spread out. It's meant to be, you know, one of this sure. like decadent like piles of gold feel. And so the candy corn is almost representing this gold. So it's just meant to pour from every orifice so it's like but the the stuff in jars you can eat this everything stuff in jars is definitely safe the stuff on the tables may be a mix of old and new but most of it's new but the other thing is that everybody's hands have gone through yeah so i would say definitely safe i think that's really what they're getting at you know they're like the candy corn's been handled yeah it's not just Um, people see like that goat there with the uh candy corn glued to its base like see people they're sitting there scraping this oh, candy corn off the base and they're eating like there's glue all over that they're like what and you're like you're just eating glue they're like huh and you're like oh wait, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah if you have to pry it off of something you shouldn't eat it yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not frosting this isn't a gingerbread house right so because all that's like held down with like super 77 and yeah. like, you know. right so the the gala then is a masquerade it's a higher ticket price it includes drinks as well as food mm-hmm. um and so that offers kind of more of uh, a soft opening for the yeah. evening and what i really liked about it i was so glad i got to experience both nights was that you know it's like you walk up and it feels like, you know, it's just the, the first foyer is just empty and there's performers and it's just kind of, they, they kind of wander through and then personally guide you down this hall. And it just feels like so much more of this like soft, detailed, curated experience that has such a different feel from the all out rager the next night. Right. And I appreciated, you know, that everyone starts in the ballroom to begin with, and there's the performances, but then everyone kind of moves through the floors and the spaces together. And yeah. it feels like Friday night is much more intimate and um, observational than participatory in some ways, where you get to experience the world happening around you. Um, but you also get, there's so much more of a focus on just, you know, really watching the performances. Watching the performances and getting to experience the environment where it's without all the, you know, the chaos is awesome and and, and Mm -hmm. great in its own right, but there's also a time when you're, you can take it all in. It's, it's almost like some few people are like, well, what night would you recommend? And I'm like, well, I recommend both. And it's not like, not just because it's It's hype, but by going Friday, it's almost this entree into this world. It's like you're starting to, you, you can get the lay of the land, you can take in things in a different way, and then it kind of builds in momentum to Saturday night. And by Saturday night, it's crazy, and you're running around, and it's amazing. But you're also, you kind of have that, 
this base of, uh, of knowledge of the building beforehand that, that feeds into it because it's just by Saturday night, it is so overwhelming that, it, you know, there's so much sensory overload by the end of the night, it's almost hard to even decipher what just happened. So sure, like, and, and having the introduction on Friday allows yeah. you to kind of settle in, get a lay of the land, feel like For you've sure. got a grasp of some of the performances happening so that right. you can really be more in the flow. On it's Saturday. also such a different experience it that, is. like, the, the, I mean, the gala, like, I'm, I'm always excited by the gala just because it's like, that's how I like to experience this space with this, just like this, it, it, it is more, feels more theatrical, feels more uh, intimate, more in the world, where the Saturday nights, for one thing, I'm a lot busier on Saturday night, but that Saturday nights are, are you know just the mayhem of all the different Halloween costumes and the flood of people and the crush of people trying to get up and down stairs and everything else that, that, uh, it is just sensory, sensory overload. And there's so much to see and do. You can't see everything. There's no possible way where the, the Friday night is because it is a curated show and it is a very planned, uh, you know, traveling experience through the space for you to be able to take everything in. I just, I like, I just, I've always really loved, the, the gala ever since it's the first time mm-hmm. out and it's only gotten better and more refined over the last how many years we've been doing the gala this will be the fifth fifth year five years okay. yeah okay. and so what how has that progression been like of you know starting it was one night mm-hmm. initially one night and then it was like knowing that we need to expand but we couldn't figure out how to do two nights in a row then the gala came as like a like also it was trying to get people to come to the event to be able to see it in a in a very selectively presented way where we're like we, we need to we need to like tap into investors we're not connected in any way we don't have any we don't know anybody with money we're like we were also like trying to draw people in to go hey we're we're also struggling here uh, but we want to show you what we can do so it was like it was it, it was it was meant to serve several purposes but they're also designed in a way where when you know you enter into like you said the ballroom and then everyone starts to travel as soon as they start to travel cleaning crews are coming in directly behind them so while the party is going on the building is being cleaned right behind this crowd the whole way well, and vice versa the, when, while you guys are downstairs the upstairs are being finished right like we're yeah. we're up to the <laughs> uh, down to the wire of like yeah. setting or resetting so right. like like it was a good thing no one's up here because none of the lights work you know <laughs> it's like so. it's kind of a way to force those things to happen and it's also like you know we spend all year on something you throw it and a lot of it is just you know theory and and uh and whatever an idea and then we have no opening night to work out the bugs. It just is what it is. And like the gala kind of gives us a softer way of, of handling that instead of where all the floors are open all at once and they all have to work. Mm-hmm. This is a way to, have the to, to ease into it on a, you know, in, in a lot of ways. It was, the gala is designed to serve so many different purposes in a way. And then how long have you been expanding into two weekends? This, is, this will be the third year? Yeah. Third year with two weekends. So this coming year is only the third. Is it third? No, it'd be the fourth. Oh, the fourth. Okay, fourth? so the yeah. gala. This will be the sixth year. We did gala then. Yeah, it'll be the fourth year. And is this this coming year going to be the twentieth? Yes. It'd be the twentieth in the you know, in the anthology of the it end, all. Yeah. It would be our tenth year outside of the old grounds. It'll be our ninth year at the Masonic. Is that how that works? No, yeah. it'd be the tenth year at the Masonic. 
In we didn't years. actually get 10 years at the old grounds. The Fillmore no. would have been our 10th year. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, so this is, so. even though it's 19 and we started in 2000, but 2000 was the first year, so... It's like, it's weird because we really go back and forth on the numbers because like 2020 would be the 20th anniversary, sort of, but then, but that's all because it's a following year, but you have to count the first year. So 19 is actually yeah, 20 yeah. years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. been 20 years, <laughs> which is nuts. 20 years. I mean, I find Pretty much that, half my life. Yeah. Right? You know, so and I find it interesting. Just doing bizarre half my life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a sad statement. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Um, I find it interesting, you know, that 2019 is also, you know, 20 years for Tangent Gallery, which has also been, you know, a longtime supporter, collaborator with Theatre Bazaar, and then also Movement, formerly Detroit Electronic, um, Demp, Demp, Electronic Music Festival, um, and I was like, what was in the, what was going on at that time to just spark all of oh, this? Was so no, you could just was, get away with anything. Like and everything, yeah, those was, three major things happened in the same year. It was such a, like, Detroit was such a uh, forced DIY community in general. Like, people were like, if you want to have entertainment, you got to make your own entertainment. Or you have to, like, people, I think it was that the whole idea of this Detroit, the new Berlin, like, I think it was more so back then when people were really, like, just scrambling to do whatever with what they had, and I found, like, having other opportunities to move out of Detroit or whatever, and, you know, doing some different things, you'd go to other places, and it was, like, the communities that would meet there didn't have the same, I don't know what you call it, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily even just drive, it was just... Balls, balls, <laughs> just to like ask for forgiveness, not permission, right? Yeah. To risk it all because you didn't have anything to begin with, so you might as well just do it. And uh, so much of that was coming out. It was, it was like why Theater Bazaar, even like you're saying, is was there's you know to build a community. It was like the community was already there because that was just our nature. Mm-hmm. It was just like how we lived. I mean, the rave culture, the the underground clubs, the I mean, all the stuff that was going on everywhere in Detroit at that time, all all through the '90s and and well into the 2000s, that now are being cracked down upon. Like, is what gave rise to all of these different communities, which mm-hmm. is the reason why Dump exists, is the reason why you know the the tangent was able to to be uh, you know a viable venue and you know because. Like, we were used to going into shitty old warehouses that the ceiling leaked and whatever and having big raging parties. Right. You we know. just camping on the mm-hmm. roof of an old abandoned building because you wanted to see the sunrise from there or, you know, you'd live in there. Like, I remember the first time going to the Tangent and it was just like basically going to another abandoned building. Like, mm-hmm. I remember the back door we used to go through to get into there and I just, it was like, it was a dump and it was dangerous. And But, you know, people, you had to stake your ground and start with something. And mm-hmm. And I think that also staking your ground, starting with something, people appreciated what they had and what they could do with it. And you did whatever it took to make it work. And I th- that, that just sort of builds an attitude and it builds experience. It builds all of these things that go into that type of movement of creative energy, for lack of a better term. It's, sure. And you I can think, feel it then. Yeah. And I think that there's um, a balance, too, of you know, renegade expression and freedom with also, like, safety. And there's so many levels to creating a safe environment for people when you are hosting an event or 
producing a space that other people are coming into and um, something that Joe uh, from Tangent Gallery had talked about was this really strong level of self-regulation in the Detroit community. It's huge. We had to be. It was like you, you couldn't afford to just like buy insurance and, and like you could be like, oh, it's all going to be covered because I've got the insurance and I've got all this. You had to like, you had to do it. It was even with the grounds, with the original grounds, it was a place where, you know, we lived. Like Ken owned those houses. It was, it was like, this was, this was his property. It wasn't. It wasn't just some venue you rented, or yeah, we mm-hmm. lived there. We lived, lived there lived, uh, day in, day out, all th- you know, all year long. And same with Joe. Joe, you know, lives at the Tangent, and like we, you know, we've we've had to make you know these quote unquote venues our homes for a long time, and 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 you can see that across the board when you look at other people who had huge parties all the time that had warehouse space. They lived there, you know, most mm-hmm. of them anyway, and. And, uh, I mean, sometimes there was definitely, you know, there was so much space in Detroit that you could break into a warehouse in the middle of nowhere and have a giant raging party and then just leave and no one would ever know you were there. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of us have, have all, you know, that this is our home. Not only mm-hmm. do we live in, you know, do we work here and build something that, you know, is bigger than us, but... I also have to, you know, go to bed and get up in the morning, you know. Sure. This right. Is, you know, my house. When we were, <laughs> when we were shut down, uh, you know, the majority of whatever, the, the heads of Detroit or whoever, whatever you want to call it, you know, not knowing about us, but the, the local precinct, they knew about us and loved us. And they were, you know, they couldn't too, you know, they couldn't vocally really defend us or they would get in trouble, but they would say, we were the safest part of their district because of all of our actions and they've never had a fight they never had a problem the cops used to love to come to our party and then they drink all our beer and like ride the <laughs> roller coaster and just be like you guys are awesome because we're not having problems here because we were self-regulating it was mm-hmm. it was a big aspect of it you don't get that when you have some detached club promoter and some detached whatever party whatever you know mm-hmm. coming in and and throwing something because you have a safety net. We didn't have our safety net, so we had to make yeah. our own. And people understand the stakes as participants, too, to be right. like, this isn't something we want to screw up for everyone. Right. And Which so, is one of the things we tried to get across when we were shut down. We're like, yeah, the reason why this party was so good was because it was illegal and you bought into that. So if you have a problem with it, you should never that go. Was, yeah, that was the risk <laughs> that we were all taking. Right. Mm-hmm. We're um, all in this together. Yeah, and that you know, people as participants also have to you know, be a part of that self-regulation where... You know, you get to some of these other um, clubs and environments where it's a really, you know, red rope culture. It's very elitist and exclusionary. And it's like people are buying into that experience as well. But then they're not being held accountable for their actions. And so you have this tendency for people to dip more into, you know, straight up escapism because they don't have to be accountable for their actions. Right. And they, you know, they get too drunk, they get thrown out, whatever. But um, I think in these underground communities, you have so much more of that, like, communal accountability, you know, that you're not just anonymous, that you are here and you are part of this group of people and you're all in this experience together. And for the most part, you know each other. And if someone starts to act out, you've got to kind of step in with that person. Right. And handle it in a way that it's not going to turn into a fight. Right. Yeah, which is part of what's changing as we become right. more and more, uh, 
mainstream, and for lack of a better term, is that you know more and more people. We're gonna we're gonna call it professional. <laughs> as you guys professionalize deep, more deeply, I wouldn't well, call it mainstream. As more and more professional. As more and more. I'd say you are. As more and more quote unquote normal people, you know, like Birmingham, yeah, Birmingham sure. housewives that want to go and experience something freaky, come to our party, and and and. You know, frat boys that like wouldn't normally have fit into that crowd. Uh, you know, is where we tend to have a little bit more issues with people being offended or too drunk or like mm-hmm. wanting to start a fight and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, which, it's a, which, the outsiders who aren't necessarily part of the community. Exactly. How do you acculturate them? And they're right. always the ones that that tend to be our biggest issues. You know, and it's like I mean, granted, we definitely have had uh, you know close friends that maybe get too too drunk or whatever but uh, but they don't usually cause any real problems the problems that I get from usually are from people who you know are you know it feels self-entitled and you know think that they, that they can do whatever they want you know and it's like we work really hard to build this we work really hard to create this and you just come here and piss on it you know mm-hmm. and it's like so now I got to show up with security and throw your ass out of here. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I don't want to have to throw people out of the party, but it happens, you know, yeah. luckily it's still pretty controllable and it's not, we haven't had any, you know, major incidents or anything like that, but it definitely, as the years have rolled up and, uh, you know, and, and became more and more publicized and, and a bigger and bigger audience starts to come is where we've seen, more issues with just you know people and it's all manageable but it, and it's expected but it's just it's it's odd you know it's like the more successful than you know in our advertising than you know we have people that just don't get it but yet they're still here and now I got to deal with them right you know? yeah and, and so what else um what else do you have to do to ensure safety for this level of an event you know it's five five stories six stories Eight. Eight that Eight. we're utilizing. Eight yeah. stories. Yeah. And how many people? There's uh, a capacity. Our capacity is uh, 4,500, 4,600, I guess, is what we consider capacity. We have never fully had a completely sold-out show, but we come very close most of the time. Um, uh, the Plus, there's like a 1,000 people in a crew. Of yeah. yeah. So there's... So there's... I have, you know... Hundred person security team. We have there's you know fifty two department heads. There's between the two weekends. There's over seven hundred and fifty volunteer shifts. There's I mean there's three hundred and fifty performers when you add up all the band members and everything else. That uh, you know the, the actual crew. I don't I've lost count of how many crew are there. It's now. a lot. Yeah, there's <laughs> like five hundred crew of, at least. You know, so we're you know we're talking about on an operating capacity on a Saturday night. You know, we have probably somewhere around six thousand people through the building. Wow. And and it's like it's a lot to deal with, and that's a lot going on. And there's a lot of moving parts, and there's a lot of you know we have people all over the building. We have people that stay there. We have people that are that are working in deep recesses of the building that only performers are allowed to go back to because that's where our makeup and costuming is and that's where our green rooms are and that's where stuff is like, you know, it's a, it's, it's a lot. And uh, we do everything we can to, to cover every inch of the space that's, po- that you know, we have instituted having, you know, 
people monitor all the cameras. We have security cameras. So many walkie-talkies and. You know, we use, you know, I use a dual channel radio, so I'm listening to two different channels at the same time, Mm -hmm. constantly. So I'm in contact with all of the Masonic staff as well as all of my staff. And then we have, you know, I I don't even know how many radios we run, hundreds of radios, as well as the the 60 or something that we own. And and we're just, uh, you know, we, we try to have eyes everywhere we can. And we've, you know luckily have been able to, to, to control and contain anything that has happened as well as preemptively stop most things from happening. Sure. So, and you feel like you also have, um, eyes on the floor as far as the regular participants and, you know, even beyond the people who are staff of just the people who still have a stake. Definitely. And this year was, was actually very awesome. We had, uh, for the first time ever, we had some really large, uh, volunteer meetings instead of individual little meetings uh, with different teams we had basically every volunteer come at one time and to see an entire ballroom full of people that is just volunteers and be able to talk with them and go you know because we, we we have a lot of orientation and a lot of it we basically have safety seminars and and we go through what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do and, and who they should talk to if they see problems and definitely report everything, see say something, say something. We're all about, you know, uh, you know we, don't, we have zero tolerance for, for sexual harassment. We have zero tolerance for, for you know, if you're, uh, you know, doing something you shouldn't be doing, like, mm-hmm. we don't want you around. You know, it's like that. Those are that. You know, we take the care and safety of everybody there, including the the guests. But anybody who's willing to give us time, like the last thing that we want is anybody to be hurt physically or psychologically in any way. You know, so sure. it's like we, you know, we need. We want everybody to to look out for each other, and, mm-hmm. and you know that that uh, has definitely, uh, like I said headed a lot of things off before they would even get going anywhere, you know, so, and everybody knows that if they need to get a hold of, you know, myself or any other department head, that basically every, every security guard's got a Mm walkie-talkie, any one of us that has walkie-talkies, we can be anywhere, and you'd be really surprised how fast I can run up eight flights of stairs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and something I found too is just, uh, you can almost see a different presence in the people who've been a part of that event for a long time where it's like so many people are familiar at this point that being hosted there for 10 years it's like I could ask them and be like hey where's the closest bathroom and they're like oh yeah you want to go this way over here we're like you know it feels like there's so much of that acculturation that has happened through people who've been participating they may not be working the event but they can still point you in the right direction or find the person that you need to find if something's not you know something goes wrong um, and I really felt that very strongly uh, when I was there. But then there, you can see the rookies, too, <laughs> the virgins who are just like, you know, just like me the first time there and just have their eyes wide, like, wow. You know, you can, you can see that presence in people of the people who are familiar and, you know, seasoned compared to the people who are there for the first time. Or the yeah. people who, you know, might be acting under that anonymous veil of not really giving a fuck one way or another. They just want to, 
you know, let loose and have a good time. And that can go in also, a lot of different ways. There's <laughs> also a, definitely an indoctrination or a, or a, a hate initiation of, of it's their first time. And also for some people, like I said, the, you know, the people who live in the suburbs and don't, you know, aren't exposed to stuff like what we do. Sometimes it also is like something that they didn't know they had mm-hmm. and they lose their mind <laughs> and, <laughs> and embrace it a little too fully. <laughs> so then you have to ratchet them back down a little bit, but then the, a lot of them end up becoming, you know, contributing yeah. members of our community as well as, you know, come back every year, won't miss it, you know. Sure. And, and seeing, like, seeing the difference you know, in, you know, someone that's just excited compared to someone who's just being disrespectful and how you can, you know, call people in rather than calling them out to be like, Hey, you know, you give them an opportunity to adjust their behavior. Also, if you've never been to theater bazaar, do not decide that that's a great place to try a drug you've never tried before. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but also it's just, it's such a stimulating environment as it is. Like like, it's like be present, like be in that experience. It's definitely like, you know, it's not a festival where you just want to get so fucked up out of your mind because that's part of the fun. Like this is like, you want to remember and it's crazy because with the gala, you know, it's a, seven hour open bar is included in the ticket price and people will show up hammered hammered, hammered. Like, they show up show hammered drunk <laughs> to a seven you don't hour need open a bar. when it's open bar right. yeah. and you're not going to remember all of this experience yeah. like you, mm-hmm. you want to I be don't engaged you want to be able to explore you want to be able to have some faculties about you I mean you know yeah certainly you know whatever it takes to like push you over the edge a little but Uh to just go full on it's like there's no need because it's already so overstimulating it's so overwhelming there's so much going on that like it's you're already halfway there yeah and i mean you're going up and down some major flights of stairs and it's (laughs) physically taxing yeah man my legs my thighs are killing me after two days of going up and down those stairs we tell people all the time it's like you come and you can wear you know masquerade ball and gown and corset and all this stuff but wear sensible shoes Uh and and like use the stairs wisely like Take the elevators up, walk the stairs down, or you know. We'll That's how I do it, as because I I traverse uh, the building nonstop because of what my role is during the party with dealing with security and all the different departments, is that uh, pretty much every half hour to hour, depending on what's going on, I'm usually I, I take an elevator all the way to the top floor and then round all the stairs all the way down to check on every single department. Yeah. And then start and back then. over again and just keep doing that. And then what I, what I tell people when they're coming is usually is like, get there early, wear comfortable shoes, pace yourself, start from the top down. That's a, it's the best way to experience it. And it's like, if you get there early enough, you can go all the way up to the top, go to the photo booth, get your photo taken while you're fresh and not a disaster because your handcuffs <laughs> ran because you're sweating your ass off from running up and down stairs right. and everything else. Get in on the ghost train early. Yeah. Right. Right. Come back, I, I, didn't the get, lines. I missed that. I didn't get to do it. I have a real aversion to lines and I like, you know, I didn't get that tip mm-hmm. early enough. Bad, yeah. yeah. And it's not open on Friday. It is open on Friday. Yeah, it's open on Friday. Is it open on Friday? Yep. Yeah. Oh, man. It's open on Friday. Oh, man. I'll have to go back. (laughs) I'm going to go back. I'm going to bring some friends because every time I show people, you know, just the photos from it or the one video I put on Instagram, people are like, what is this? What is this? I'll tell everybody. (laughs) I'm like, dude, bizarre. It's in Detroit. Just the right people. Right. Uh, And... So let's let's jump over into the finances. Like this is a huge endeavor, 
And you know, from the beginning, like how 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 is how have the finances evolved through this process of supporting an event like this? Because it basically just covers itself. Right. From the beginning, it never covered itself. It used to lose money regu- every year. From the beginning, it was like this was not. It was never meant to be a business. It was never mm-hmm. meant to turn into what it is. It was never meant to be sustainable. It was just we have an opportunity to build this ridiculous theme park. We're just gonna go balls out till we get caught. In the very beginning, I was. Uh, I used to work in advertising and, you know, would make some decent money back then before, like, what was it, 2007 auto crash, like, killed that whole thing. And uh, I was basically saving up money to take time off. It was like my vacation to work on it. And then, you know, me and a couple other people had credit cards and we put the entire thing on credit cards, hoping to sell tickets to pay it off. We'd pay off the credit card and start over the next year, trying to even figure out, you know, where we're going to, like, get some money to, to to pay for the tickets to be printed and then to, to sell the tickets to make the money to pay for what we're doing. And, and no it was one, like... No one got paid. Everybody that worked the event bought tickets. Right. You know, it was like... You, it was just you, an investment. Yeah. You can who owned the land bought tickets. I created it, bought tickets. Everybody bought a ticket and it wasn't, you know, we weren't, it wasn't about making money then because it was like ridiculous. It was like in the end, if we had, you know... $1,000 over. How do you split $1,000 with all your friends? It's like yeah. everybody gets 50 bucks for what they did. It was just like it's a stupid... Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. So we're, we're going to have this party anyway and let's just yeah. do this. And then, you know, once we went to the Masonic, there was like a whole other ball of wax and we're like, okay, this has to be at least somewhat more sustainable, which we're still in the same position. It was just like, okay, it's going to get better. Next year will be better, and it is. But we end up, we take in more money, but we're paying more people, and we're paying more people mm-hmm. more. So it's still... We, yeah, we slowly ratchet up the pay for, for you know, like basically year over year. You know, we try, try to, to give breezes, and we have given bonuses before when we didn't know if we were going to make any money and then afterwards we had money like we basically every dime that comes in regardless of 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 how we stand at the end of the year ends up going back to the to the people that work to make it happen and whether it be thought out beforehand or given them back out later yeah Um, yeah some people you don't know what an asset they are until it's all over like because you see the nature of some of it someone shows up and they don't have any accountability or responsibility but slowly they're building it and you go at the end you're oh they did all of this and we didn't really have a budget for them but you know we have this bonus we can you know Mm -hmm. give that over but I think as we've gone, you know, even in the two weekends, we thought we're going to be able to grow and this can be sustainable. But I think it's just telling us more and more what this ceiling is. And like for me personally, you know, the amount of people, like the production of people that I would have to hire to do what I do to it, we can't afford. So just end up we're still behind the eight ball, no scrambling what, and, and yeah. we're working like, too hard and not not really able to. The people we have, we can't pay enough. The people we need, we don't have the money to pay. And it just... And then from personally, like, I'm in a position where I can't take on, like, freelance jobs or other things because of the responsibilities of this because we can't afford to pay people to do what I do. So I just end up making the sacrifices over and over and over again. And it's getting mm-hmm. to a point where, you know, we have kids. I have other things. And it's like, it's it's killing me. It's, uh, and I don't see a way out. Like, I can't, I can't afford to pay the people that I need to help me. Like, sure. just on the jobs that I have with this thing. And so it's like, 
we've had these times really in the last couple of years. Ken used to say it years ago, like, this is it. This is the last year. This is over. Because he, you know, like anybody, you're when you're sacrificing this much time and effort with no payout after, you know, so long, it's it's just dumb. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It, it wears on you. Yeah, yeah, it's taxing on you. And he, he wanted out a long time ago, which, you know, you can't blame him. And then, but I was always like, because like, you know, in the position of, holy shit, when are we going to have this opportunity to do the scale of what we're doing? So we just kind of push forward and make the sacrifice. But even then, like the last couple of years, like it's, there was an article in the Metro Times where I was just like, I don't know if we're going to last. Because when we went to two weekends, we knew if we split the crowd, it would it could devastate us, which it basically did. We split the crowd. We had a whole bunch of money that we had saved up over the few years leading up to it knowing that that's going to be a problem we wiped that out went into debt but we were still like the crew was like well we have to continue and you're like okay i don't know you keep and no one wants it to stop and it's like we work so hard to you know try and keep spirits up but at the same time i think it's it's the people that work for us that keep us lifted to even strive to keep doing it because Mm -hmm. it is hard it doesn't make any sense at all it's completely uh you know destroys most people's like vacation time like you know there's so many people that work for us for for barely any money that also now have no vacation for the rest of their year because they took all of it so they could come and work at theater bazaar Wow. Yeah. So there's all of it. That's why we're I'm saying like in the that, beginning, it's a yeah. it's a million dollar party that should cost three million, and that's at the base. So it's like, it, it the scale is so massive, and the amount of people and resources that it takes to put it on, it's like there's a we keep saying there's a reason why there's nothing else like it in the world because mm-hmm. no one else would do it because it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah. and hard it, and. Mm-hmm. And the sacrifices we made, like up until this point, it's like I don't know how much more I could do it at this pace. Like sure. even though we grow, it's like but when we're growing, we're paying more people and we're paying other people more. So on our end, we're not necessarily seeing that. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to keep the rest going because it's just a treadmill. Even though the party is has grown in fantastic and amazing ways, and and the the staff and the and the crew and like people really coming into their own and owning their departments and creating accountability for themselves even and you know but it's like it just we're just everybody spread so thin and works so hard and takes so much out of everybody that you know I don't know you know without having some sort of of shift that's going to be financially beneficial to actually be able to take care of people and and the changes that are happening in Detroit where, you know, the Masonic is steadily becoming, you know, more investment is going into the building, more they, they've sold their, their entertainment arm to a, to an outside company. They have, uh, you know, renovations going on and, and are steadily becoming more and more booked that they keep squeezing us more and more for time that eventually it's going to either become too expensive or too dangerous to feasibly put together in the time frame that they want to do for us mm. to do it in. So they're giving you less lead up. Less lead up and building. way less tear down. They just keep squeeze. They want us out as fast as possible, you know, and it's like, it's just, it's massive, massive amount of stuff. And it's just, you know. Yeah, it's the eight it's floors. It's over 300,000 square feet of space that we're just using and we're transforming every inch of it, yeah. you know, and it's mm-hmm. like to tear all that down in five days it's dangerous. It's like our sure. crew is getting pushed 
to the extremes and it's we just we don't know where where to go so what's the dream like if if there weren't these you know barriers if you could do anything with this project with the future with you know whatever you want personally like what would the dream be at this point for the future to be self-sustainable to have something that is our own where we can you know it's the, the unfortunately all this money aspect of it is as an artist it's like it feels like such a dirty word but it doesn't exist without it so it's like to have mm-hmm. some plate you know the concessions and you know things that I don't really necessarily care about the specifics of it but just the fact that it funds the arts you know mm-hmm. so to speak um, to have property to be able to do what we want to do you know it's it's all the building is beautiful but we're also constrained by the fact that it's a historical building and we can't you can't tie into the floors of the walls so we have to build our own custom jack systems to you know to everything's pressure fit in place because Mm -hmm. we can't even you can't put a single nail into anything in the building so everything that's built freestanding and 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 self-pressured into place because because you can't affect anything in the building Mm -hmm. so you know it's like it's a it's it's a massive uh just engineering nightmare on top of the fact that that uh you know we can't like when we had the old grounds and we had we could we could improve year over year we could improve month over month we could do you know summertime let's start building stuff you know Mm -hmm. and we don't have that option because you know it all has to be flat packed in a room that you can't walk into until we're ready to pull it all back out so there's so much compromise in design so much in the aesthetic the fact that it has to be modular and fits through every doorway on its path to get to where it's going all of those things take away from an ultimate aesthetic that like we wouldn't have those barriers to to not have those barriers Mm -hmm. to be able to have something that pays for it you know to have something that's a combination of indoor and outdoor you know it's like don't know i mean i'm it's it's a big struggle and for me personally there's Mm -hmm. also like i'm a i'm an artist and a painter and a sculptor where i'm not doing any of my personal work because everything is going into this and it's like i'm I'm not painting and I'm doing back-end administrative work that I'm not even, I don't know how to do. It's not my forte. It takes me even longer. And and then in like years, I'm not painting or I'm not creating. It's servicing this party or whatever. And it's like, I, you know, get to a point where I'm like, I just want to relax and paint. <laughs> like mm-hmm. This thing is, it's so big. I don't know where to go with it. Without $10 million, which to us is like, that just... It's crazy. You know, you hear yeah. people that are like, oh, yeah, we can get you this and that. And I'm like, sure, but we haven't seen any of it. And in the meantime, I'm dying. We've had big talks with people who talk big, but nothing that's ever materialized from it because it's a, it's a huge investment with, you know, a group of people that don't have any money. And that's a lot of times, to, I think, is part of the you know we don't have other than our personal sweat equity we don't have anything to offer to put back into it as well so it's like I mean I feel like we have a massive reputation we have an amazing portfolio of of accomplishments and work Mm -hmm. um and all it's going to take is the right person but we also don't want to give away the farm and and sell the integrity of the event and, you yeah. know, like, and, and lose, lose control of it where, yeah. you know, it turns into, 
you know, Red Bull, Coke, and Pepsi signs all over the place and, and you know, brought to you by Miller Lite and shit like that, you know, mm-hmm. so. And I've been the stickler from the beginning. This is, this is this immersive experience when once you enter, I'm like, especially as like some old school punk rocker, like I hate logos. I hate mm-hmm. these labels and sponsors and all of that crap that takes away from the integrity of it. One, we don't want anyone telling us what to do or compromising any sort of vision or and having vinyl banners and, and yeah, stuff to take you out of this experience. But it also, you right. know, Thank you, Red Bull. Shit, we're promoting Red Bull right now. Right. <laughs> so yeah, all those things take, you know, it's 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 that balance yeah. of sacrifice and how do we get there from here with and, and still maintaining it and people, everybody's like, oh, you just need to buy a building and control the bar. It's like, yeah, duh, but we don't have any money to buy a building and then maintain the building and put in, you know, repairs into the building. We don't have mm-hmm. anything. We're yeah. still, I'm just like still borrow money from my parents to pay the bills the rest of the year because this is still a sacrifice getting too old for yeah and just looking at like possibilities of stuff it's like yeah it's out there there's things like i've looked at old schools and and other properties that you know but but anything that would even be in the realm of attainability for us either requires a dramatic amount of work no matter what, it's going to require a dramatic amount of work. But I mean, if you buy an old husk of a building, you got to bring it up to code. You got to yeah. put in all the facilities. You got to do all the other stuff. So then you start looking at other buildings that are move-in ready. Like I found, found a church that's move-in ready. It's an operating building that I can move into and get occupancy right away. That's $4 million right off the bat just to start. And then we have to retrofit it to be whatever we want it to be, which is going to be another, you know, eight to seven million dollars to do it properly. You know, like, you know, it's one thing when we could just go to Home Depot and buy some four by fours and throw them in the ground. But when you have to have, you know, load bearing inspections, you got to have fire suppression systems, you got to have, you know, all those Mm -hmm. safety factors that are required to have a legitimate venue. It's just astronomical real fast mm-hmm. especially yeah. the scale that we're doing it's not like we're just opening a club or a bar with yeah. yeah this is like because so much of that's a part of what theater bizarre is is this choose your own adventure this this thing where you're exploring and you can go anywhere and everywhere you can't mm-hmm. do that with a you know two three room club you know it's it's it, the scale is a part of it and to try think, to maintain that is yeah. it's a tough hill. And the beauty of it, like you right. can't, like yeah, you could buy a warehouse and and slap some stuff into it, but mm-hmm. like the amount of work that it would take to make it feel like theater bizarre, you like you need also need to find a building that has you know pleasing architecture already yeah. that you can build upon. You know, mm-hmm. otherwise you know it, like you're. I mean, we're not gonna like recreate Vegas on a on a shoestring budget budget where you can just build whatever you want on a foam. You know, so sure. I mean, could you see it becoming more of a consistent, immersive, ticketed event? Like, if you did have your own building, would you be interested in doing something that's more along the lines of like the Sleep No More or Then She Fell type? Possibly. thing that isn't just, you know, focused around Yeah, I would think it would probably have to be organic and and some things would change and maybe it would be limited where we're only open, you know, a couple nights out of the month every month where you can... That's the way I see it is like like a monthly exhibit or show or type of thing, kind of like what we used to do on the old grounds where there might be an art show or there might be a play or there might be Mm -hmm. a whatever, 
But then Theater Bazaar is Theater Bazaar, and that takes over the entire space and takes over mm-hmm. all of the stages and takes over all of the sure. things. Sure, but then there's but other Then there's other things. Offerings. And then just like what we had on the old grounds that we don't have by having a space in general, like what Joe has, you know, it's an incubator. It's a, it's a, it's a community gathering place. Like all the, all the other circus practice that they do there and all that, like that started at Theater Bazaar. You know, mm-hmm. they used to practice in our yard. And, and Tangent you know. Galleries kind of become yeah. that gathering space. Yes. So just even having the ability to do, like, you know, even any kind of gathering, educational, uh, you know, and I can't tell you how many people want to get married at Theater Bazaar. <laughs> we don't let them. Yeah, <laughs> so. I bet they probably just do it in secret. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so, you know... I think that there's a path for revenue, sustainability, and to have a dedicated crew of people that, that is their legitimate full-time job. Mm-hmm. But getting there is a, it's a big, hump. big, big stack of cash. Yeah, yeah. and also, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, the next generation of creatives and artists and producers who are part of this production stepping up into these bigger roles so that you guys aren't the ones you know, doing all of the backbreaking work and investment, like, do you have, do you feel like you have a strong um, group of people who are, you know, being... We have a strong core, it's just that the amount of moving parts and and a lot of specialized skills that generally make decent living, we just don't have the money to support. Right. Like somebody being a full-time webmaster, somebody being a full-time advertising agency, somebody being a full-time, you know, social media, you know, we just don't have the revenue or the income or even people that would have the skill set for that. That's what they do for their job and they don't have time to mm-hmm. do it for us, you know. It's yeah, like, it's a million dollar shoestring budget. It's like, like yeah. everything even at that point is spread so thin that it's like this thing... You know, from the outside, I feel like it looks like some giant solid entity, whereas in reality, it is such a fragile construct that could blow up any, anything. Like even we noticed last sure. year, just the things that we had planned to do show-wise last year and all these ideas that we were really excited about, none of it really came together because in the two weeks leading up to it, we had a bunch of performers that had injuries or one performer was picked up by Cirque du Soleil and just having oh, a few... Perf- that. Yeah, just having a few performers uh, not be able to perform and what the scramble to fix that, it was like a house of cards. The rest of it all kind of fell apart because every every aspect of it is so, it's spread as thin as you can get and it is so mm-hmm. fragile. And it's like, you know, I said before, people, I feel like, you know, hear this, this people hate and said it since we brought it up of like you know we don't know this could all go away and it's like it still could all go away it is still mm-hmm. always on the verge of collapse yeah i mean and it's something you know outside of that like like if something were to happen to any of our core group members like you know if there was a you know some sort of death or accident or whatever like the, the ripple effect would be staggering mm-hmm. and and, and could cause massive parts of the production to just come to a halt. Right. You know, so. Sure. Because there's no, we don't have any, we don't have, we can't afford redundancies. Yeah. Like you can't, if one person's doing the job, they don't have a team or assistance or anything to back that up. That is it. And, mm. and when some person fails or one thing fails, 
it affects so much rapidly and it's it's and it's a scramble to to fix it and it which takes away from other aspects so there's mm -hmm. no matter what something gets sacrificed and it's uh, it's brutal and it's like I said more and more as we get you know as we try to trying to reach sustainability we're seeing this ceiling you know that's sure. that's hitting us hard where it's it's a it's a tough one to get around um, so what in closing let's kind of wrap this all up this has been very informative and um, just so interesting to hear the back end you know after experiencing the glossy finish of the um, the event the itself. Thin veneer of professionalism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but what, what are some of the things that you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with other people? This is, you know, this is a nearly 20-year process yeah. of doing this every year, which is just incredible in itself. It's, it is a feat. Right. Even no if, one's going to give you permission to go big. Right. <laughs> it's almost like the thing that I learned was trying to kind of speak to you last year was the uh, this uh, the fact that going into this we didn't know the possibilities we didn't know what could or could not be done so we just did it all anyway and and pushed everything as far as we could and you know it's it's like just having the balls to start it and everything else kind of you figure it out as you go you just have to take this massive leap and even mm -hmm. now like. <clears throat> I still, as much as we've done and we learn along the way, it's to me it's still this big experiment where we're just like we don't know if we're <laughs> going to be able to pull this off. Like mm -hmm. we we have knowledge and we've gained things and we have a lot that goes into the theory of this experiment, but it's still. And we found that like even went to this uh, immersive design summit in San Francisco oh, recently. Did, and did you go just now? Yeah. Oh, my friend Michael Garcia is a part of that. Yeah. He's always sending me little updates. Great. I so. went last year, and it was pretty eye-opening, and then I made sure that he went this year. And, yeah, yeah, it was I just... I wanted to go. I couldn't miss swing it. But. Hearing how, like, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling, and we have all these issues, and we're still like, is this sustainable? And, you know, can you know, we even pull this off, and how ridiculous it is? And you go there, and everybody is in the same position of... Uh, is this sustainable? It's like you're talking about theater in general, and theater has been around for centuries, but immersive theater has only been around for like 25 years or so, and so no one even really knows. It's still such a fetus of like they're trying to like go. Well, what about industry standards? And like we haven't even really set industry standards yet. Nobody even knows if this is going to work. This is still as far as immersive design. Yeah, and, and yeah, right. and there's only there's only a few real exceptional successful. You know, immersive theaters like Sleep No More, and and uh, you know, there's a few other like Meow Wolf isn't really immersive theater, but it's an immersive experience. Mm -hmm. Like you know, those are those, those are like like a handful of the few that like even some of that are awesome that I know sell out all the time. I've talked to the owners, and they're like, yeah, we're barely hanging on. You know, it's mm -hmm. like it's just it's just it's a difficult thing. It's expensive to produce, and and you know, to get the buy-in from the audience to 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 you know, pay that extra money versus just going to a club or whatever seems to be huge. And your repeat, like, I think one of the best lines at the summit was just like, it's, it said that, uh, that immersive theater is cool for everybody who's into immersive theater, but how do we get the rest of the people to come? Mm -hmm. You know, so right. it's like, you know, I mean, honestly, it's a huge challenge just to get people out of their living rooms. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's, it's important like work to get people like, together. Mm -hmm. Stick no more. <laughs> They can be sustainable because they're in an area where theater is supported and the, the tourism is there. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's 
there's those pockets where they do work. Whereas Detroit, we're still struggling. Like we're on the verge of maybe having some tourism, but you know, it's we're still not there. We still go outside of the area, and we're like, yeah, we're doing this in Detroit. And they're like Detroit, but we're it's still only the people that come to Detroit to tour it are, are generally people that are punks and don't have a lot of money and just right. want to go see Detroit. Right. So they still not going to pay two hundred fifty dollars <laughs> to go to our show. You know, so I don't know. It's a it's a it's a it's a hard path to, to see, let alone follow. Right. Sure. Yeah, it's, there's no guidebooks for what we're doing. So it's mm-hmm. just, uh, and I, don't, I couldn't tell you what I've learned. I've learned that this was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you produce an incredible experience, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful that Theater Bazaar exists. I'm grateful for, you know, just being a part of this community more recently in the last year of, like, hearing all the different ways that this event has impacted the local community and the local art scene and the performers who now are able to, you know, book gigs in other places and can, they've absolutely become more professional through, you know, their connection with Theater Bazaar, giving them a reason, giving them a goal of something to work towards that has expanded further. And, you know, even if this becomes something that is, you know, a lot of things don't last forever. And that's okay. You know, everything is temporary. And this is an incredible feat, but I hope it continues. And I hope that that it continues into its next phase. That's what I'd like to see. So I I really hope that there's... um, That's the dream. (laughs) Right? It's that opportunity for that next step. But thank you both so much for your work and your passion and everything you do to make this happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This project is brought to you by you, the listeners and supporters of Patreon. If you would like to support the Party Pro Toolkit by contributing $5, $10, $20 per month on Patreon, you will help this project grow as we share stories and ideas from party professionals. Support of this project will allow the research to continue in other cities across the country and around the world. To learn more, please visit PartyProToolkit.com.